Hello, you are listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is. We record the real-life memories and perspectives of those who experienced the history of Carnegie Mellon University. And for our third season of the podcast, we're looking at Steel City Outsiders and the Institutional Avant-Garde. Or... Or the story of how Oakland, our neighborhood here in Pittsburgh, emerged as an unlikely center for avant-garde and experimental arts in the 1970s. So this season, we're diving into stories about how this happened, as told by the people who were actually there. They're stories about starting something new, about not necessarily having a plan or funding, but finding a way to do it anyway. These are stories about finding belonging and community and forging new creative forms. We're talking about avant-garde film. We're talking about punk. We're talking about electronic art. We're talking about how computers changed art and music and arts communities themselves. Well, let's see. So far, we've discussed Sally Dixon in the film section, Pittsburgh filmmakers, the Selma Burke Art Center, and the University of Pittsburgh's Electronic Music Studio. What are we going to talk about today? Well, something we've been discussing is the role of institutions in supporting artists and art communities. And we've seen this trend where an organization arises and creates resources and spaces for artists to use. Think Pittsburgh filmmakers with their photography darkrooms or the Selma Burke Art Center with their clay studio. So if you have a potter's wheel, an artist can push the boundaries of what they can make on that potter's wheel. If you have a Steenbeck editing table, people can edit films. Basically, artists can use these tools, but they're also kind of limited by them. A potter's wheel makes pottery, and not much else. So what happens if you have an artist that has an idea for a tool that doesn't exist yet? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and I'm glad you asked, because that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the computer as a tool for making art. Oh, so a technology that creates tools. I have a good example for this. Can I play you a clip from an oral history interview I did with Dwayne Pelka? Yeah, let's hear it. So Dwayne Pelka attended CMU in the 1960s. At that time, it was called Carnegie Institute of Technology. Dwayne received two undergraduate degrees, one in mathematics and another in art. He enjoyed both subjects, but found that making visual art allowed him to tap into his subconscious mind. In a sense, I'm entertaining myself here with images that I can't predict and I'm putting together. I thought, maybe I can write computer programs that would entertain me as much as what I'm doing with my subconscious with this surrealism thing. So I started trying to program the computer to make art. Today, let's talk about how students developed new software at Carnegie Mellon University to do things like create computer-generated art and innovative performances. We will hear more from artist Dwayne Pelka and also from computer scientist and musician Roger Dannenberg. So I remember you saying that Dwayne Pelka's interview was a little bit different, right? 
Yeah. Do you want me to run through the process really quickly? Yeah, that sounds great. So I get in my car, I put on some tunes, and drive to Rochester, New York. And you do that because that's where Dwayne Palka lives, right? Oh yes, I should clarify. Uh, sometimes we travel for interviews, but not that often. So hours later, I pull up to Dwayne's house. I take out my recording gear, knock on the door. Dwayne answers and leads me into their foyer. And it is decked out with his artwork. Wait, so you did the interview in his entryway? Yeah, there were so many artworks packed into the room that my back was right against the front door throughout the whole interview. It was awesome, though, because Dwayne had the room set up as a gallery. There were paintings and drawings and these kinds of sculptural works, many of which he made while attending Carnegie Tech. So I set up my gear. I hit record on the two cameras and the audio recorder that we use. And then we talked for three hours. It's a three hour interview. And this one was a lot of fun. Dwayne would hold up certain pieces of art or he would play animations from his computer to supplement the stories that he was telling. I will show you this because this is for Joanne Mayer, for her class. She was a painting instructor. She took us to the south side of Pittsburgh to a slaughterhouse. I took my sketchbook along and I did drawings in the slaughterhouse. It's nice to hear about these little details. Duane went on to describe his process for drawing objects at the slaughterhouse. And it's just wild that he remembered certain things in such vivid detail. Yeah, but memory is definitely fallible. Mm, yeah. I can't remember what I had for dinner last night. Oh, I had a cod with uh, roasted peppers and onions. It was good. But the point of oral history isn't really to capture exactly what happened, but rather to capture the experience of what happened. We want to record how historical events, how life is experienced. And we'd learn things about past events that are not written down anywhere. So, for example, we know Duane went to Carnegie Tech. But the official university records don't usually tell us why students choose to attend. Did he talk about that in his interview? Yeah, there was a series of decisions that led to Duane attending Carnegie Tech. I was born in Duquesne, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Pittsburgh, about uh, 45 minutes drive from Pittsburgh down the uh, Monongahela River. My father was a steel worker. Um, he worked in a steel mill his whole life, and my mother was a housewife. Uh, which was not atypical for that area at the time, right? Duane began his art career at a young age, in the crib even. Also, my first painting, uh, there was a wall that was very next to my crib, and I used whatever material I had available to me in my diaper, and I remember making my first painting on that wall. I don't think I got my parents' approval, though. When Duane was five years old, he started making more substantial work. The first art object I remember making, I took a cigar box and then I cut out pieces of paper, one for a head and one, two for arms and two for legs. And I thought about that cigar box as being Jesus and I put on a head and two arms and two legs on it. And then I took another piece of paper and I cut out squiggly things like this that I thought was intestines and then I put into the cigar box and closed it. The steel mills in Duquesne were a constant backdrop. 
His father worked in the mills, and for a little while, Palka did too. My motivation when I went to school, and I went to school at Carnegie Mellon University, Carnegie Tech at that time, was not going towards something, but going away from something. It was getting away from those steel mills and never having to work in them. Because I saw, I saw what that was like. In fact, my, my father was supposed to go to work one day. He was, he was a little late getting out the door. And my mother said, uh, he has to go now, honey, because if he doesn't go, he'll get fired. And immediately I thought of the blast furnaces. I thought he, being him being dropped into those blast furnaces. But as a five-year-old kid taking things literally, that was my impression of things. Growing up, Palka had an interest in art and attended the Tamashanser classes at Carnegie Museum of Art. And in high school, he actually took some classes held at Carnegie Tech. These classes were probably similar to what CMU's current pre-college art programs look like. And soon he was a mathematics major at Carnegie Tech. This would have been in 1962. Wait, mathematics? Yeah, Duane also had an interest in mathematics in high school, mainly due to a teacher. And to Duane, it seemed like an interesting field of study to pursue. I went to Westminster North High School. There was one charismatic instructor of mathematics, and I discovered that I was pretty decent in mathematics. And so it turns out that, and this is going to class reunions, that a lot of us actually went into mathematics and went to college. That was surprising. I did too. Now, not knowing where I was getting into and not knowing what the different fields were, if I had known in advance, I probably would have chosen something else. So did he take any art classes at Carnegie Tech? Yeah, by his junior year at Carnegie Tech, his interest in art reemerged, and he was actually able to maneuver a deal where he could finish his mathematics degree while starting a second degree in art. So that's what I did. So I became a freshman again. And, and I was kind of an odd duck there because here I was, I was, I was the guy with the briefcase and the slide roll going into the fine arts school. And in my, in my freshman year, I was doing better there than I was in, the, uh, in mathematics, actually. And besides, they were calling me Duane and talking about my artwork and how we should go this way and should go that way. And I just absolutely ate it up. The, see, uh, what it is is that Working in this environment as an artist is very enticing. It's so wonderful when you have all these other people doing creative stuff around you, uh, especially in the building of fine arts. Fine arts was layered. Uh, the bottom layer was the, was the sculpture department, and it was the theater department. And then you went up into the mezzanine was music. And then you went up to the third floor architecture, and then you went up into painting and drawing and painting areas. So you had the skylights at the top of the building. But also, if you, with the windows open, you could hear the people singing, me, 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 in the music, in the music department, just flowing up. And it was, just, it was just filled with all this creative energy. So it was very enticing to become an artist in that sense. In addition to the environment, Duane spoke about his interest in surrealism. 
Oh, surrealism. So like Salvador Dali and René Magritte? Yeah, and folks like André Breton, who wrote, The imaginary is what tends to become real. And I was fascinated by surrealism and doing imagery that I didn't understand. In other words, coming from my subconscious, and it didn't make sense to me. Now, this is in antithesis to mathematics, which is which you totally understand what you're doing, and you have to prove everything to even understand it even better. But this is like allowing things to happen on a canvas that are dreamlike, and you don't understand it. So Duane is fascinated by surrealism. And it sounds like he wanted to push things as far as he could. Yeah. I would say the limits of dream state are pretty out there. <laughs> pretty wild. <laughs> Does he somehow combine his approach to surrealism with his work in mathematics? Yeah, Duane found a way to do that using computers. I'll let him tell you the story. Now, the one thing that I kind of got interested in doing is back in my math program when I was there, I took a class in programming. And I didn't like it that much. It was okay, but I learned how to program, basically. When I started becoming a freshman again in art, I found out there was a computer that was available. Just anybody can work with it if they liked. And we're talking about punch card computers. We're talking about you punching out on cards, stacking up cards in a box, hand it to somebody who's wearing a white or light blue jacket behind a glass window in a air-conditioned room with a computer. That's what computers were. And you would hand a stack of cards in with your program, and then you come back four hours later to pick it up and find out you made a typo. And then you have to retype that card, or two cards, whatever you made a mistake, put it back together again, hand it to the guy, and then four hours later, maybe it would work. So I started that, I started working with that kind of a process. So this was the late 1960s, and computers were starting to emerge at the university. Yeah, Duane used one of CMU's first computers, the Bendix G21. And what Duane said about computers may sound familiar to anyone who listened to the last season of our podcast, where we spent a lot of time talking about the early years of computing on campus. The season was called The Wild West of Computing, and check it out if you want to learn more. But after I got out of mathematics, I thought, you know, with computers, in a sense, I'm entertaining myself here with images that I can't predict and I'm putting together. I thought, maybe I can write computer programs that would entertain me as much as what I'm doing with my subconscious. So I started trying to program the computer to make art. So at this point in the interview, Dwayne reaches for a box containing pieces of art. I have a whole box of stuff over here. Oh, does he show you a few examples? Yeah, he showed me about 20 works on fairly large paper. It was a little chaotic to watch him pull out all these pieces while I was trying to keep the camera in focus. And some of them are pretty simple, some of them are pretty complex. These were works that he created on the Bendex G21. He wrote a computer program to create them, and he told me a little bit about the process. How did you decide on the patterns? Um, it started off very, very simple. And what I did, when I, when I made these things, I, I made up sort of my own rules, which was fun to do, of, uh, of you know, how to make things. I, I, I tell people, if they're making this type of work, then uh, being naive as a naive, naive programmer is actually of value. 
because you'll make mistakes, and sometimes the mistakes will be better than what you intended to do. That and the element of chance. So even though you put in rules, the element of chance meant that you weren't sure what rules would be playing and how the rules would be interacting with each other. And making things so complex that you can't predict what they would be doing. Now, I'm, I'm more, much more advanced as a programmer nowadays, but then I start, just start playing with things like different types of shapes and how they overlaid each other and give sort of a randomness to how they interacted with each other. Oh, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, for those of us who didn't see them in person, what did the pieces look like? These pieces vary, but they are abstract shapes created with a series of layers of printed letters, X's, N's, Z's. The layers create depth, perceived shadow, movement, and shape. Some of the works look like op art, optical art, kind of like visual illusions. You know, the kind of art that just buzzes on the page. Yeah, and kind of makes your eyes itch a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You can't quite see what you're seeing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, but some of the pieces are a little more straightforward, too. So Pauka was one of the first artists to experiment with computer-generated art, and it was definitely a first for CMU. Yeah, he talked about that a little bit, because the Computation Center had never worked with an artist before. Now, what was funny about that is that they were used to, in the Computer Center of engineers doing problems and coming out with just text on a sheet of paper. Where here all of a sudden, all of a sudden the computer stops typing on a printer and it thinks for a long time. And then it goes and goes, it does a line, but it doesn't upspace the page. And then it goes again, right on top of the, of the text. In a sense, you would think that this is something that's broken, that maybe the printer isn't working right, because it does that four lines. But that's how I do tonality, uh, was that I have N, an X, a Z, and I overprinted those on top of each other to make a solid or a gray tone in between and a lighter tone here and start making pictures like that. Actually, I, I should give credit to, I, I asked around a lot, and I found somebody in the computer center who says, you know, I know a way that you can not upspace the page, or you can control the spacing on a line. And I picked up on that, and I put that into my program. Today, CMU is very much known as a place that mixes art and technology, but that wasn't really the case then. And it sounds kind of like Dwayne was one of the first. Yeah, it was a new frontier, but not everybody was happy with it. And the head of the computer center said he wasn't happy with this. I mean, he stopped this stuff from happening. He says, this is not normal. And somehow I hooked up with, and I don't know how this happened, but I hooked up with uh, Dr. Herbert Simon, who was a professor there at the time, who was a Nobel laureate. But he was a professor in basically in AI, artificial intelligence. He was a professor in psychology. He was a professor of the Graduate School of Industrial Administration. He got his doctorate in political science. And he got his Nobel Prize in economics. So he was a huge factor at the school. He was writing programs to simulate Bach at the time. Somehow he found out what I was doing. I may have gone to him and asked him, I showed him some of the stuff that I was doing to see if he was interested at all. 
But he took me under his wing then, and then he started giving me support for this. And we had sessions once a week, and I took class. I got class credit for it. And he also got me, also got it so that I got money during the summertime to do that. It was enough money to pay for my tuition. So I got $1,000 in the summertime to do this type of stuff. And that was tuition at the time. But I worked like crazy. I mean, I did, I did, uh, and it was sort of like, it was mind-boggling in a sense. Wait, Herb Simon was working with him? Simon is a big name at CMU. Think Newell Simon Hall on the university's campus. I mean, he's one of the founders of AI and has this really long legacy in computing history. Yeah, the Computation Center at CMU, which was the entity that executed most of the campus computer programs, basically put a stop to Duane's work. But Herb Simon was interested in it. Do you know what drew Herb Simon to these pieces? He would just like the fact that I was bringing in something new for him to see every single time. And we would discuss them. And I would, I would talk to him about the techniques that overlaying and... Uh, how I did this. And actually his, his, his secretary told me that, you know, she says, she says, I do a similar thing on a typewriter. <laughs> so, <laughs> but <laughs> so Dwayne and I continued to talk about his exploits beyond CMU. He worked for George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic. He was a researcher and programmer in computer graphics at the University of Utah. And he spent a dozen years at the New York Institute of Technology Computer Graphics Laboratory, where he worked with old school animators. So these are folks that worked on the Betty Boop cartoon. And together they made a really surreal animated film. Dwayne showed me a bit of it, and it's really beautiful. But to cap off his CMU experience, Dwayne exhibited his computer generated works at one of the first major computer art exhibitions. The first place they were exhibiting, exhibiting was in the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London. So when was this? Was it in the late 60s? Yeah, uh, 1968. The exhibition was at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London, and it was called Cybernetic Serendipity. There were computer-based artworks, but also time-based media. I think exhibiting on this scale is a huge thing for an undergraduate and relatively rare. Right. Um, that was a huge moment for me as an undergraduate. Yeah, and Duane was exhibiting next to artists like Nam June Paik, who was exhibiting televisions with distorted images. Also representing Pittsburgh was a choreographer and pit professor named Gene Beeman, who used a computer to develop choreography. But in looking at the program, it seems like computer-generated art wasn't the core of the show. There was just a handful of artists out of 130 displaying computer art. But the show had 40,000 visitors. It was the first time many people saw computer-generated art, and it demonstrated some of the possibilities. If you look at the program for Cybernetic Serendipity, the works were very idiosyncratic. And we were working in isolation. I mean, I didn't know what anybody else was doing with each other. But, and that was kind of nice because the results were very different in various places. These were experiments. This was a new frontier. 
and many of the artists exhibiting computer-based art were associated with universities. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, computers were these large, expensive machines that required a lot of people and resources to manage them. And we have a few oral history interviews with people who worked in the computation center at CMU, and they talk about this issue. Yeah. And as the 1970s progressed, computers became smaller and more affordable. They started to slowly, slowly approach something that would be recognizable to today's desktop users. And as computers got smaller and a little more affordable, they became an important tool for artists to make new art. So these affordable computers coincided with musician and computer scientist Roger Dannenberg's arrival at CMU. I came to CMU in 1979. Roger Dannenberg came to CMU for a PhD in computer science after studying at Case Western. His PhD focused on resource sharing within a network of personal computers, but he was also interested in music and had ideas about composition and performance. And some of these ideas were spatial ideas, and that could mean a variety of things, but in Roger's case that was, how can music be experienced when the sound source is coming from different directions? Or maybe it's coming from long distances. So if you think about surround sound in a movie theater, that's an example of spatial sound. I decided to work on spatial music, and I had this idea that knowing how to build digital circuits, I could build these devices that we could use to conduct people sort of remotely. And the, the first thing that I did was a concert called Music in Open Space. And it was on the, the cut, you know, really, yeah, right, out, right outside here, but between um, the College of Fine Arts and Hammerschlag Hall. So that's about a thousand feet long, it turns out which means at the speed of sound, it's, it takes one second to go from one end to the other. So there's no way uh, that you could stand in the middle and conduct people. But I had this idea that what if we could conduct everyone electronically, you know, that far apart and also kind of stationed up and down the, the cut on the sides, it's probably 300 feet wide. And then what if the audience could stand in the middle and they would be like the only ones that would, that would actually hear the sounds coming together synchronously. So around this time, Dannenberg was attending a regular composers forum, and he used these as an opportunity to corral other composers to write short pieces for his spatial concert. I kind of proposed this to the group that people could write pieces, just write a piece and then we'll rehearse it and perform it. And, and so that's what we did. But the technological component took a bit of money and a little preparation. I got money to build the devices and buy wire <laughs> from Raj Reddy, who, you know, always said yes. And he was just so enthusiastic about everything. And I, I told him I had this crazy idea and I wanted to build this, these circuits and have these musicians around. And Raj said, great, how much, you know, how much is that going to cost? And 
it wasn't much because it was just buying parts. So, but you know, to me, a few hundred dollars was like a, a lot of money. To him, it was it was just fine. It was the kind of thing he wanted. So, Raj Reddy is a pioneer in computer science at Carnegie Mellon, and he's been on the faculty for many years. He gave me a, a budget so I could use the department to order a bunch of parts, and, and we actually bought. You know, it must have been over 2,000 feet of wire, so that's like half a, half a mile of, of twisted pair, which was needed to communicate among all these, these boxes because we didn't have local area networks at, at CMU and Wi-Fi was you know, way off in the future. So we actually you know, transmitted stuff serially over this wire. Roger enlisted students to wire wrap and build some of the circuitry. And the circuitry was just a row of LEDs that would blink in sequence. So, you know, downbeat, second beat, third beat, fourth beat, downbeat, first. And then there was another uh, like seven segment, two digit LED to show the measure number, because I figured people would be so far apart, they wouldn't know if they were in the right place or not. So through LED light, performers basically had a silent metronome dictating the beats of a measure and performers could see which measure they were supposed to play. There was also a sequence that gave performers the initial downbeat to start each piece. The encoding was all done by this little computer that I built. And, and, and so we did the concert. It was, I thought it was a big success. It was the kind of thing that you really couldn't record because the, the sounds were so distant and so faint. But it, it was just a real experience to be sort of just out in the middle of the cut. And you hear musicians from all different directions sort of playing the same thing. And, and it's like, how could that even be possible? <laughs> Music in Open Space was performed in March 1980, and what you're hearing is my best estimation of maybe what it sounded like. After finishing his work with spatial sound and his PhD at CMU, Dannenberg actually accepted a job at CMU as faculty. So this was um, a, a really big transition because, as I said earlier, I thought I was going to be an industry researcher, and then I thought, well, maybe I'm going to be a, an academic researcher, but I was still kind of focused on operating systems. And I had a lot of things left over from my thesis. Uh, I wanted to write a couple of papers, uh, which I did on, you know, some different aspects of my thesis. And so that was keeping me sort of busy as a you know, kind of hardcore operating systems, computer scientist researcher. But at the same time, I thought, okay, now that I'm done with my thesis, I don't have to stay so focused every day to get that done in time. So I should spend a little bit of time thinking about some of these computer music ideas I've been thinking about and reading about for so many years. Enter Nico Haberman, the then head of the computer science department. Nico Haberman was very just helpful and understanding that 
you know, you get good research done by doing what you really love to do. And he knew that I had interest in music. He had a musical family. Uh, so maybe that had something to do with it. He thought that uh, maybe in time I could pursue this stuff that I really loved and we could, you know, build up a bigger group and build a team and a lab and stuff. And, and so the department did make some, some lab space available to me. It was, it was kind of leftover lab space from another. It was a, a very acoustically isolated room that had been created for some other research. And I think nobody really knew what to do with it. So they gave it to me like it was a big, <laughs> they were do, making a big sacrifice for me. It wasn't long before music-related research gained traction. Carnegie Mellon hired Paul McAvinney, who was working on hardware for musical interfaces. The main idea was doing touch sensors and gestural control. And, and this was all driven by musical thinking that he thought, you know, when musicians are performing, if they're using computers, they're not going to go over and start typing on a, on a keyboard in the middle of a performance. It's not intuitive and it's not fast. What musicians are able to do and, and doing with, with analog equipment is turning knobs and bending the you know, whammy bar on a guitar and all, all that kind of direct kind of manipulation. And so Paul thought that if we could build sensors that could sense freehand gestures or touching screen gestures, that would you know, make for a much better interface. Dean Rubine arrived as a grad student the year after Roger took a faculty job. And he was also interested in this research. So it was kind of the three of us, uh, Dean and Paul and I, were the uh, kind of core computer music group. And the three of them together started something called the Computer Music Project at Carnegie Mellon. You know, in those early days of uh, Dean and Paul coming on board and me sort of just getting myself established and uh, sort of learning that I could probably keep doing the operating system research, but I was really having more fun doing computer music stuff. And after talking to some senior faculty, they said, well, you know, if that's what you want to do, just do it, but just be sure you do really good work <laughs> and, and be sure that when we have to evaluate you, there are peers out there that are going to speak highly of your work because, you know, that was kind of how decisions got made. Like, People were not going to decide computer music was a good thing or a bad thing. They were going to decide whether my computer music work was having an impact on the world and being recognized. And, and so, you know, I never really planned everything I did to optimize that. But I, I did get the feeling that if I, if I did the stuff that I really loved, I would at least have a really good time and probably do a better job than working on anything else. And, you know, and then we'll just see what happens. One of the first things that Roger worked on was something called computer accompaniment. Roger filmed a demo video in 1983. This is a demonstration of a computer accompaniment system. I'm going to begin by loading a file into the program. If you want to see it for yourself, you can find it on his YouTube page. And we'll play a few examples from the video. This started really in 1983. Paul and I went to the International Computer Music Conference. Uh, I remember very well hearing a talk about someone building a, a conducting, well, sensors for conducting. It was probably a ultrasonic, uh, like rangefinder sort of sensor that would sense someone doing conducting gestures. And I thought, well, that's a weird 
thing to use to control a computer because I know as a musician that orchestras don't really literally follow the conductor and, and where the beat is relative to the conductor's gesture changes all the time. It's, it's very counterintuitive because people think the conductor's job is to give tempo and precise beat location. And they do that occasionally, but a lot of times conductors, for example, are reminding musicians of what they did in rehearsal. I must admit that if I had realized this in high school orchestra, I would have had a much easier time. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and they rely on musicians to just use good musicianship and play together. I thought that this researcher just had a very naive view of what music making really is, which is common for engineers. But that made me think, well, you know, how do musicians stay together? Well, we listen to each other and we get cued by each other. We internalize the tempo and we understand where time is going and we play together based on this expectation of where the next note should be. And I thought, so I wonder if I should think about getting a computer to do that instead. So then I started thinking, well, we have scores, so we could build a computer-readable version of the score so the computer knows where the notes are. And then the problem is just matching notes of one player to the notes in the score, and then using that to calculate what the tempo is. And then knowing the tempo, the computer could synthesize music, you know, synchronized to a, to a human player. The file contains a score, and in the score, there's a part that I'm going to play on trumpet. That's also displayed on the screen. There's another part, which is an accompaniment part, in this case, composed quite some time ago. The purpose of the program, then, is to listen to my performance, a live performance of the solo part, and to synchronize the other parts and, and play them along with me. really interesting idea, but I'm wondering why, why was this needed? You know, why was he so set on having a computer accompany a musician? Like, like, why is that a problem? Why does that need yeah. to be solved? Yeah. Why is this something that a computer can possibly do better than a human? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Roger and I discussed that a bit. All of this was kind of designed to solve a perceived problem that a lot of music was being generated by computers and recorded onto tape, and which now we call fixed media because we don't use tape anymore. But So these fixed media performances require human performers to listen and follow the tape and the sounds on the tape. You know, that can be really difficult. It's, it's always very confining and takes a lot of expressiveness away from the player. Or, or makes them work doubly hard to sound expressive when they're actually locked in to timing. So, for example, in the last episode where we discussed the concert series that Morton Sabotnik started at Pitt, if you look at those programs for the concerts, the instrumentation for some of the pieces are things like violin and tape, or oboe and tape, or piano and violin and tape. And the tape aspect is a reel-to-reel -reel tape machine that is playing pre-recorded music on the stage. So this kind of thing isn't quite in vogue anymore, 
you are more likely to see computers interacting with live instruments. So today it's more of a dialogue between the computer and the performer, which is exactly what Roger was working on in the early 80s. So Roger was working on something that is really prevalent now. I thought a computer following humans would, would be a much more natural musical way to do things. And, you know, that was the beginnings of computer music. And I spent a fair amount of time trying to figure out how to do really robust matching in real time between what the player is playing and what the computer is expecting them to play. Because musicians do make mistakes. And even if they don't make mistakes, like in real time, trying to figure out where every note is and what the pitch is, is error prone. You need some robust way to, to do the matching. If you consider every possible match, it's, it's an exponential problem. If you're looking at many notes, the, the runtime just grows exponentially. And so you need to be kind of clever about that. And I was you know, fortunately able to find some prior work that was not designed to run in real time. And I was able to you know, add some heuristics and figure out how to make it run in real time and create some really robust uh, systems that could follow live performers. To illustrate how well the pattern matching works, I'm going to deliberately create a nightmare for the accompanist by playing lots of wrong notes, changing the tempo, and missing some notes. This led to Roger publishing a number of papers and filing a patent for the software. I'll pursue this story a little more and then maybe back up to another project. But what happened with uh, computer accompaniment, uh, one thing that happened was we thought maybe this would be good for education. And I started the uh, Piano Tutor project where we built a multimedia computer that would give students something to play, let them play it. It would use computer accompaniment to match up what they played with the score and detect when they made mistakes. And then it would uh, use some AI techniques to give them feedback. In some cases, it would see that they're missing the same thing uh, multiple times and it would, it would construct a new lesson to sort of drill on the, on the place they made the mistake until they master it. And then you could fall back to letting them play a whole piece of music. So this was very interactive, kind of state-of-the-art AI, the first intelligent tutor to teach a psychomotor skill, we like to say. Uh, so that was, that was interesting work for a while, and we had some funding from the Markle Foundation, which is very helpful. Roger was able to commercialize the piano tutor when a business person and also a musician, John Paulson, licensed the patent from CMU and created a company. Went through multiple names. It was called Vivace and then Smart Music. And then uh, the parent company is now, I think, Make Music 
com, And there's still a product out there. So there are hundreds of thousands of mostly high school musicians, I would say, practicing with this kind of intelligent practice agent. Many of them don't even know the accompaniment is there. So many of them just play along with the, with the recording. But, but it is possible to switch on some following and, and play more expressively and have the system follow them. So we heard about two projects that Roger worked on in his early CMU days. Music for open spaces certainly speaks to the freedom of experimentation in a university setting. You know, you have an idea, and now you can get the means to try it out and see what happens. Yeah, and when he created the computer accompaniment program and the piano tutor, it really speaks to this larger trend at Carnegie Mellon and beyond in the 1980s. It's kind of about the commercialization of research. And as we saw in season two of the podcast, The Wild West of Computing, the 1980s were a transitional period of time for computer science. You know, industry and government were becoming bigger factors, and many companies started to spin out of research done at Carnegie Mellon. Today, we would call these startups. Yeah, and alongside this commercialization of research is the open source movement. Open source software is software that is free to distribute and modify. It is decentralized and it encourages collaboration. Yeah, that's an important nuance. You know, it wasn't all about commercialization. You also had this not quite opposing, but accompanying open source emphasis. And throughout the 1980s and 90s, Dannenberg continued to work with Dean Rubine and Paul McAvaney to develop things like the CMU MIDI toolkit and a sound synthesis and composition language program called Nyquist. And in 1999, he and a collaborator, Dominic Mazzoni, created something called Audacity, which you may know about. I've certainly used it. Yeah, so Audacity, strangely to me, is, is maybe one of you know, my strongest calling card. When I, if I meet someone on the street and I say, you know, I did this work on temporal semantics of programming languages, it doesn't go very far. But if I say I, I co-created Audacity, they say, oh yeah, I use that all the time. Uh, so Audacity is an audio editor. Uh, we started it in um, probably late 1999 or 2000. We being Dominic Mazzoni, uh, who was a grad student at the time, and me. At the time, we were working on a query by humming. So that's a problem of if somebody says, I can't remember the tune that goes like, like this, and they sing it, can you get a computer to search a database? And you know, around 2000, Google was, was big or becoming big. Music online services were beginning to form, but there was really no way to, to do search. And so this was kind of a cutting edge problem to work on. In the process of working on it, we, we were just trying to visualize some waveforms and visualize the analysis of that waveform that we were doing as part of this research. And the, the visualization tools were just terrible. And we thought, you know, we could probably just build something and it wouldn't be that hard and it would might be worth it. And in the process of building this visualization software, Dominic said, you know, if we just added a little bit to not only do visualization, but since we have to be able to kind of rearrange things to, and zoom in and zoom out to, to visualize it, we only need a few more operations like cut and paste and we could actually build an audio editor and then just write the results to the, to the disk for output. 
And uh, so we, we ought to do that. And I said, yeah, if, if you want to work on it, that's <laughs> that if you want to do that extra work, that's fine with me. And and uh, so that became Audacity, the editor. And it was it came at a really good time because Apple was making a transition from using Motorola processors to using IBM PowerPC processors. And in, in doing that, they kind of made a lot of software music software obsolete because it had been highly hand optimized for this specific processor and no longer applied. On the other hand, we were doing no optimization. We just wrote it in C++ and, and we were very early able to just recompile everything and build an editor that ran native full speed on a power PC, the new, the new hardware. So Dominic put this thing out on some file sharing service and said, hey, here's a if anybody wants our, to try our editor, here it is. And, and we started getting you know, lots and lots of downloads. And, and we were pretty much outperforming you know, commercial software that had been around for a long time. And Audacity really started to take off. Yeah. And so Audacity now gets something like a million downloads a month. Uh, it's been that way for, for many years. So there's uh, easily hundreds of millions of, of users. Recently, we were acquired, uh, which was... An interesting experience. It's uh, it's something that's that's going to be really good for the future of Audacity. I mean, already there are more people working on Audacity than ever before because they're they're salaried employees. The business model is such that it's to the advantage of the business to keep Audacity free and open source. And so, you know, I think that's kind of our dream <laughs> was always to create this this thing that would be self-sustaining, and now there's even a financial model to, to keep it going. So that was you know, something that just came out of the lab more, more or less by accident, but it's been a huge success. I asked Roger why open source software was important. A lot of researchers really value open source because as academics, we don't expect to make a lot of I mean, we're, you know, we're not we're not keeping secrets and uh, trying to make money by withholding information. You know, our job and our life is disseminating information. And that's that's the success. So open source is seen as, you know, part of that dissemination of information and making making things available to everyone. Dannenberg also points out that there is a place for both open source and commercialized software. Yeah, as Roger puts it, it really depends on the situation. Well, there's there is there is a tension in in commerce between open source and and closed source because obviously if you if you keep stuff uh, closed sourced and, and licensed then you can sell it and I mean some people are totally opposed to that and just ideologically feel that all software should be free and it's the only way I'm much more flexible on that I I think some software only makes sense to sell it uh, but you know in the early days. We thought one way to reach lots and lots of people with computer accompaniment was to build a commercial product and there'd be a marketing budget and there'd be money to fund the content development that students would want. And so, you know, I think that can make sense, too. hearing the story about how well-known software like Audacity started with two artists who wanted to create something new. 
And we saw that with Dwayne Palka too in computer art. Mm. Yeah, in the university environment, computers became tools for students and faculty to do all kinds of creative things. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit earlier. CMU has this growing reputation for merging arts and technology and coming up with these really interesting projects as a result, but that wasn't really always the case. There was a time when that was a novel idea. And now there are lots of options at CMU. There's a Master of Entertainment Technology degree from the ETC, the Entertainment Technology Center, which was founded as a joint venture between the School of Computer Science and the College of Fine Arts. Yeah, there's also the ID8 program, which is in Hunt Library with us. It stands for Integrative Design Arts and Technology Network. And the cool thing about that is that it's an undergraduate program that offers minors and classes. And you can learn things like game design and animation. Uh, there's also BXA, which is also for undergraduates. Ooh, I haven't, haven't heard of that one. Uh, the BXA program is an inter-college degree program. So think like College of Fine Arts plus Engineering or Computer Science plus Humanities. Students in this program graduate with knowledge of the arts and whatever other area they choose to concentrate in, which is a pretty cool novel idea. That does sound really cool. I feel like that would appeal to a younger version of me or a current version of me. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. Next time, we're going to check back in with the film section at Carnegie Museum of Art, which we covered in episode one of this season, if you want to go take a listen. If you remember, we ended episode one on a cliffhanger. Sally Dixon left the department, but it continued to evolve. Yeah, we'll hear about Sally's successor, Bill Judson, and how he changed the department. We'll be hearing about how they used film posters to promote some of the shows. We'll hear about the emergence of media arts centers that look similar to the film section. We'll also start to see the acceptance of video in museum galleries. It should be a fun conversation. This episode was written by Catherine and Dave. And Dave made all the music along with the bands How Things Are Made, Waterer, and Nat 28. Except for audio from Roger Dannenberg's video, Computer Accompaniment. Thanks, Roger, for letting us use the audio. The Oral History Program is funded by the Weibel Foundation and other generous donors. If you want to help us continue preserving stories like this, consider making a donation to the Oral History Program at library.cmu.edu slash orohistory. Also, hit subscribe so you don't miss more stories about Steel City Outsiders and the institutional avant-garde. And if you like the podcast, consider leaving us a review. Let us know what you think. See you next time. <laughs>